0: PFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Adam Schatz says Israel can't extinguish Palestinian resistance by violence any more than the Palestinians can win an Algerian-style liberation war. The only thing that can save the people of Israel and Palestine is a political solution that recognizes both as equal citizens. Adam is the former literary editor of The Nation and now U.S. editor of the London Review of Books, where he wrote about Israel and Gaza. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we're speaking on Wednesday afternoon. The House of Representatives hasn't functioned for three weeks, but today, somebody named Mike Johnson became the new Republican Speaker of the House. Who is he?
1: I would say he is the most dangerous Louisianan we have had since Huey Long without the somewhat redeeming economic populist aspects uh, that uh, Huey Long also possessed. He is dangerous in part because he is so articulate, affable. He started some kind of civil discourse thing uh, earlier on in his career in the House, which only began in 2017. But I just finished uh, listening to his inaugural speech to the House. And it is clear that in addition to uh, a demeanor, which is very, very winning, more so than that of just about any Republican I've heard in a long time, he's a guy who believes, uh, you know, that America is uh, sort of predestined uh, in a Christian sense to lead the world and that this is all part of God's plan.
0: And that part of God's plan was... uh... That to Trump become president in 2020, and the darn Democrats foiled that.
1: Well, uh, one would have to extend his belief to that because he was the author of a House resolution, not a resolution, a, a letter that a slight majority of House Republicans sent to uh, the Supreme Court uh, to uphold uh, what was, uh, they argued, was Uh, Trump's election because of voter fraud that was, uh, alas, never documented because it didn't happen. He spoke today, uh, Wednesday, that is, for slashing uh, the size of government, uh, the traditional Republican thing about uh, reducing the national debt. uh, And he wanted to set up a bipartisan commission on this. I can only assume the Democrats' will insist that the way to do that is to raise taxes on the rich. That that seems in and of itself uh, not, not a, a totally dangerous uh, stance, but someone who really embodies in many ways traditional conservatism, but has made himself at home with Trumpian conservatism as well.
0: Well, the most pressing tasks facing the House, now that they have organized themselves, are, aid for military aid for Israel and military aid for Ukraine. Uh, how does Mike Johnson stand on those issues?
1: Well, he specifically said in his inaugural address that the first bill he would put before the House would be military aid to Israel. He did not mention the word Ukraine, but he kept harping on the need to be the beacon of freedom, etc. cetera. That struck me when you weigh that against the failure to mention Ukraine As what is really the Republican Party's position on Ukraine right now, which is a straddle, that it has uh, two wings with uh, uh, diametrically opposed views. And damned if he was going to actually state his.
0: You have a political analysis of the current Republican Party published recently in the American Prospect at prospect.org. You say the Republicans in the House are divided into two factions. You call them the anti enlightenmentists and the anti-realityists please explain well the traditional republican position has drifted to
1: the point of anti-enlightenmentism it uh, rather disdains the whole notion of majority rule uh, which is uh, uh, implicit in the republicans uh, efforts to thwart voting and to preserve uh, institutions like the electoral college it uh, denigrates the claims of science. I should add that in his inaugural address, Johnson referenced the, the words, in God we trust, which was inscribed, as he said, over the uh, dais, uh, over the podium uh, at the uh, in the house during the Cold War as a refutation to what he referred to as godless Marxism. Uh, so, I mean, there is a kind of general anti-enlightenmentism that is at this point become Republican mainstream. Anti-reality is, you know, Trump won, there's major uh, fraud, and there's a PRRI amazing very large poll that was released uh, today, Wednesday, uh, makes clear at least about 15% of Republicans believe that the world is run by an elite that is basically a Satanist, and practices uh, pedophilia. So that's kind of the anti-reality wing. We have representatives of both in the Republican House delegation.
0: That's the, (laughs) that's the, the news from Washington. Now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. We've been reporting on the auto strike uh, the news this week is that the UAW is shutting down the biggest and most profitable plant of Stellantis, formerly Chrysler. This is 6,800 workers walked off the job at a factory north of Detroit that makes Ram trucks. The UAW said Stellantis has the worst proposal on the table regarding wage progression, temporary worker pay, and conversion to full-time cost of living adjustments, and more. Stellantis replied that the company was, quote, outraged by the expansion of the strike. Uh, what does this mean?
1: Well, the UAW has been striking and you know to address both sort of long-term concerns like unionization uh, and maintenance of membership as the uh, auto industry shifts towards electric, and they've won a major victory on that the immediate demands of the workers however are for higher wages a good cost of living adjustment and eroding the whole two tier system that began uh, you know 15 20 years ago in which uh, the, the newer class of workers is underpaid and the UAW has been working to reduce their being stranded in that tier for 8 years uh, they want to eliminate it it's got you know in, in any event they're making progress on all of this they've gotten gm to agree to it has upped its offer to 20 uh, a 23% uh, percent raise over the duration of the contract the uaw has come down to about 30 but uh you know i think it, it the ultimate settlement i think the uaw is going to stay out until uh the comp- you know at least one company agrees to really shorten that lower tier and to uh, get the wage increase up to closer, much closer to thirty percent. At that point, I think you know they'll sign a contract with whichever company that is and go all out striking against the other two.
0: New York Times business section this morning reported that in the first six months of this year, Stellantis reported twelve billion dollars in profits more than GM and Ford combined. That's in six months.
1: That's pretty good. And uh, it (laughs) provides ample reason, should anyone question, why the UAW is now striking Stellantis' largest and most profitable plant in the US.
0: And of course, we've also been following the Hollywood actors' strike. Uh, There are hopes for a settlement this week soon. Beginning of this week, the four CEOs of the biggest studios and streamers, this was Tuesday, reopened negotiations with a new offer that they say they hope will break the stalemate. It's now been, I think, 100, 102 days the actors have been out. Um, these are the CEOs of Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, Netflix, and NBC Universal. Variety reports they are eager to get a deal as soon as possible in the hopes of salvaging next summer's box office and at least some of the 2023-24 TV season. The blow that got their attention was when Paramount announced on Monday that it was postponing the next Mission Impossible sequel from June 2024 to May 2025. And more delays like that could follow if this isn't resolved soon. So. The news suggests to supporters of the union that the union holds the leverage to win a transformational deal. Or do you think that's too optimistic?
1: Well, you know, uh, the writers' strike was uh, only settled when I think those same four uh, CEOs finally showed up at the negotiating table with the Writers Guild and essentially acceded to many of their demands. Now it's somewhat mysterious, I think, to a lot of folks, definitely including me, as to why uh, the, the the studios have been hanging tough since the actors' demands uh, aren't all that distinct from the writers' demands. I think the actors, however, do have uh, a sort of greater concern about aspects of artificial intelligence, uh, AI being used to replace, uh, you know, if not Tom Cruise, at least, the character standing uh, in the far background of Tom Cruise uh, on a given shot. So that probably has been uh, the the main source of uh, difference there, then probably more than it was in the writer's strike. But again, the fact that the four CEOs have finally showed showed up uh, suggests that the the studios may be ready to uh, say, okay, you got it.
0: Well, let's talk about the Biden administration's policy regarding Israel's coming invasion of Gaza. New York Times headline on Wednesday said, U.S. raises concerns about Israel's plan of action in Gaza. And the lead was, the Biden administration says Israel lacks achievable military objectives in Gaza. Close quote. Seems pretty devastating to me. Uh, Biden's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told ABC News that he had, quote, encouraged the Israelis to conduct their operations in accordance with the laws of war, which he emphasized meant protection of civilians. Even more than that, the Biden administration says or tells the New York Times that they're concerned that the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, does not have a clear military pathway to achieving Netanyahu's declared goal, eradicating Hamas. Biden sort of said this publicly during his speech in Tel Aviv when he warned that Israel would need clarity about its objectives and an honest assessment about whether the plan you're on will achieve those objectives. Senator Jack Reed, the New York Times reported Rhode Island Democrat who heads the Armed Services Committee, supports a ground invasion to destroy Hamas, but warned that block-by-block urban fighting in Gaza would be a long-term effort. He noted that when the Iraqi army, with the support of the United States, fought to recapture Mosul from the Islamic State, it took them nine months. Nine months from now is July 2024. And the Biden administration is also rightly worried about who will rule Gaza after the Israeli invasion is finished. Israeli army says, uh, we are focused on the objectives of the war as defined by the polit- political echelon, the route of Hamas, but the Israeli army, quote, will not rule Gaza militarily and politically. But that leaves open the question, who, who will? And of course, the Biden administration is also concerned about a wider war. The Israeli invasion of Gaza could lead Hezbollah to attack Israel from Lebanon with the support of Iran, and that would put the United States in a face off, military face off with Iran. So Biden doesn't think Israel has an achievable goal in invading Gaza, but is supporting an invasion anyway. I wonder if you have any comment.
1: Well, I think that very uh, accurately sums up the conundrum that the Biden administration is trying to deal with here. And I don't think there's really a very easy way to square the circle. You cited the speech that Biden gave in Tel Aviv. I would cite the speech he gave from the Oval Office to the American people in which he said, we, the Americans, overreacted and wrongly reacted to 9-11, referring to uh, the subsequent pretext uh, of that to invade iraq which turned out to be a disaster for all involved it's it's sort of working both ends against the middle uh it had biden has an understandable revulsion about what hamas did as i think uh, the vast majority of americans do and understands though that when you have maybe 25,000 members of hamas interspersed completely among 2 million civilians, half of them kids, living in Gaza, that, you know, you can try to win sort of the tactical victory, and I don't mean to poo-poo it, but the tactical victory against Hamas, and lose the larger war of, you name it, Israeli legitimacy, if, if they start killing not just thousands, which they already have through aerial bombardment, but tens of thousands, and for all we know, maybe hundreds of thousands of the Palestinians in Gaza. So this is not what you would call a coherent American policy, but it's coherent perhaps only in the sense that biden and the people around him thought that by embracing israel they could also put a break on israel even as though even as they were aiding israel's material resources in in waging this war that to put it mildly is hoping that you're going to draw to an inside straight and uh, that doesn't happen very often
0: harold myerson read prospect.org harold thanks for talking with us today Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We need to talk more about Israel and Hamas, the Palestinians in Gaza. For that, we turn to Adam Schatz. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He's also written for the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of Books, and the New Yorker. His book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, was published in May. We talked about it here. His new book, on France Fanon. It's titled The Rebels Clinic. It will be out in January. And he has a big piece on Israel and Gaza out now at the LRB. We reached him today at Bard College. Adam, welcome back. Thank you, John. We are speaking on Tuesday, October 24th. As of today, Israel has killed more than 5,700 Palestinians in Gaza, According to the Gaza Health Ministry, mostly civilians, including more than 2,300 children. The UN humanitarian office says 1.4 million people have now been internally displaced. That's more than half of Gaza's population. Meanwhile in Israel, the toll from the Hamas attacks on October 7th has reached about 1,300 dead and at least 3,300 wounded. I think it's 289 of the dead were soldiers, the rest civilians. 222 hostages are being held right now in Gaza, Israelis and some foreign nationals. Today, we are waiting for Israel's invasion of Gaza, which of course will kill and injure lots more Palestinians. You open your piece for the LRB with a report about life in the Gaza Strip now. Interviews the New York Times podcast did last week with two Palestinians, starting with a man in Rafah at the Egyptian border. He told her, "What's happening here is not about Hamas at all." What did he say it was about? Well, um, he said, that "This is, you know, this is not about Hamas. He's
2: not a member of Hamas. He doesn't have political sympathies with Hamas. He felt that it's a war against the Palestinian people, and that their crime had been to be born Palestinian." And um, I think that is a very strong sentiment that runs among uh, people in Gaza. We have to remember that Hamas is not particularly popular, has not been particularly popular uh, in Gaza in recent years, um, in large part because of its authoritarian rule. And um, in fact, it's often said, and this may be an exaggeration, but maybe not too great an exaggeration, that um, Hamas is more popular in the West Bank than than it is in Gaza and the reverse for Fatah. And, you know, there has been a tendency to um, conflate Hamas and the people of Gaza and to thereby um, justify uh, Israel's violence against ordinary Gazans. The New York Times uh, ran a story a a day or two ago um, in which um, the reporter estimated that about 13, at least 13 Hamas leaders had been killed in Gaza, 13 out of now over 5,000 dead.
0: In your piece, you also quote the great Israeli journalist Amira Haas, who's been reporting on Palestinian life now for decades. What did she say about Gaza? Uh, Amira
2: Haas uh, wrote in her uh, uh, great book on Gaza, Drinking the Sea at Gaza, that Gaza embodies the central contradiction of the state of Israel democracy for some, dispossession for others. It is our exposed nerve. You know, Israelis don't say go to hell. They say, they say go to Gaza, which tells you something about how the Gaza Strip is perceived in Israel.
0: Let's talk about Hamas for a minute. Hamas knew their attack on October 7th would provoke a massive Israeli bombing of Gaza and an Israeli ground invasion and maybe sustained occupation. Hamas knows it can't protect the people of Gaza from Israeli retaliation. So what what is their strategy here? What were their motives on October 7th? Well, there are their
2: motives, and then there's the strategy, and those obviously are two different things. And um, before I um, go on to talk about that, I just want to register that um, an event of this scale, I think, elicits as one's first response, not even an attempt to explain or to assess motives, but a kind of mute horror, because this is, you know, this is, a, major, this is a major war crime, a crime against humanity. You know, to some people, to, to many observers, um, what Hamas did may seem inexplicable, or to, to use another adjective that has often been uh, cited, um, unprovoked. But, but Hamas's uh, motives uh, are not very mysterious. Um, they wanted to reassert the primacy of the Palestinian struggle at a time when it seemed to be falling off the agenda of the international community. They wanted to secure the release of the more than 5,000 uh, Palestinian political prisoners um, in Israeli jails. They wanted to uh, scuttle the rapprochement between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, the so-called Abraham Accords. They wanted to humiliate Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian authority that he leads uh, in the West Bank. They wanted to protest against uh, settler violence in the West Bank, which has been particularly extreme under the Netanyahu government, which is headed by the settler zealots, and extremists. Um, they wanted to protest the visits of religious Jews and Israeli officials to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, and and I think you know they also wanted to send a message to the Israelis that um, the Israelis are not invincible and that they have to pay a price for maintaining the status quo in Gaza. I suspect too, John, that that provoking an Israeli uh, response, a very fierce response, a, a, a potential ground invasion, uh, may have figured in their strategy because the likely result of that is to drive people even further into the hands of Hamas and also I think this is something that I don't think people are have really uh, I don't think people have really considered to make armed struggle the sole means by which Palestinians speak to deal with Israelis because you know it's not particularly well understood in the west but there are rich traditions a protest and civil disobedience among Palestinians. The first intifada from 1987 until 1991 was defined largely by nonviolent, unarmed civil disobedience. The second intifada obviously was a, was a violent one. I think that Hamas wants to transform itself, wants to project itself rather, as the sole legitimate authority of the
0: Palestinian people and as the, the vanguard of an armed struggle. You note there were two distinct and radically different parts of the October 7th attack. First, the Hamas fighters broke through the Gaza border and fence and attacked military outposts, killed hundreds of Israeli soldiers, took 250 more soldiers hostage. You call this, quote, a classic and legitimate form of guerrilla warfare against an occupying power. And you distinguish sharply between that... And the second phase of the Hamas attack, where Hamas fighters were joined by residents of Gaza on a killing spree, hunting down civilians on the kibbutzes near the border, remind us about the difference between these and and the horrors of the second part. Well, first of all, you know, I want to I want to underline, John, that I'm not saying
2: that these are two strictly demarcated sequential phases, because for one thing, we don't know, and secondly. We also don't know what the explicit orders were of the Hamas commanders. Was the mass carnage part uh, of the plan that Hamas had developed over the last, what seemed to be the last two years? Or was it some kind of deviation from the plan? Was it that the soldiers were not under strict orders, were undisciplined and began rampaging, along with, of course, other ordinary Gazans who had followed Hamas um, uh, into southern Israel? We don't know. And I and I think that it would it would not be right for me to su- to suggest otherwise. But it does seem to me that there are distinctions to be drawn between launching a military operation that targets representatives of Israeli state power and the um, Israeli soldiers, and an operation that designates as its targets ordinary civilians, men, women, children, even babies, and to slaughter them in cold blood. And then, of course, as we know, also. To uh, post videos of the killing on the social media uh, social media sites of the families of victims. This is something that is um, is quite different, it seems to me, and 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 deeply troubling. Um, and of course, there is a possibility that this was calculated. We simply don't know.
0: We've been told that the initial Hamas attack on October seventh was Israel's nine eleven. That underestimates the impact. The percentage of the Israeli population killed that day is many times greater than 9-11. The methods of killing were far more personal and and bloody. But the 9-11 comparison does work in a couple of ways. One is refusing to talk about the root cause of the attacks. In this case, the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. Many Israelis and, and their supporters in the United States have a a strange ability to simply forget about the occupation i doubt there are any palestinians on the west bank or in gaza who can forget about the occupation that's true john to be a palestinian is to remember the occupation
2: you know, every minute of your life. Um, And Palestinians, of course, also remember uh, the 1948 Nakba, the catastrophe. And, you know, it's worth recalling here that um, we can't really refer to Gazans because two thirds of the people in Gaza are the children and grandchildren of people who were driven out of what is now Israel in 1948. The occupation was clearly one of the motivations behind this uh, horrific assault because in recent years, Um, Israel has been able to cobble together deals with a variety of Arab countries, Arab countries that are interested in Israel's Pegasus technology, its surveillance systems to to monitor their own dissidents. And uh, Netanyahu, who's always believed, who's always insisted that Israel could transcend what he called the territorial dimension of the conflict, really thought that he was making the Palestinian issue disappear. And I would say that among all the motives for this attack, and there were many, Perhaps the most important was to say, no, we're still here, and there can be no peace in this region without us.
0: In your LRB piece, you suggested that a closer parallel than 9-11 is the Algerian revolution. The FLN killed lots of French civilians who lived in Algeria, and of course eventually drove the French settlers back to mainland France, even though they'd been in Algeria for more than a century there's lessons here that are being studied by both hamas and by the israelis right i mean of course there are you know there are just
2: differences the israelis unlike the french in algeria don't have a homeland to go back to so there there are distinctions and yet at the same time israel is a country that um, originated in colonial settlement and a country where waves of settlement have continued over the years because israel is not merely a state; it's it's a movement of colonization of the entire territory of Mandate, mandate Palestine. The parallel that I was alluding to had to do with a um, with a, an uprising that took place in 1955, uh, less than a year after the Algerian independence struggle began in a in a harbor town uh, called Philippeville in eastern Algeria. The FLN had found itself at an at an impasse that it was having a hard time breaking out of, not unlike Hamas confined to Gaza in a 17-year siege, in a sense reduced to governance without being able to break out of its confines. And so the FLN uh, decided to carry out a very bloody attack in which uh, dozens of French people and also some Algerians um, were killed. And this massacre um, led the uh, French to commit Uh, terrible atrocities afterward. About 12,000 Algerians were killed in the weeks after the Filipeville uprising. And the result was to create a kind of river of blood that separated the two populations and to drive even the most moderate Algerians into the hands of the FLN.
0: It was the turning point in that war. In the debate that's been going on, Each side accuses the other of Nazi-like atrocities. Uh, Of course, that's a very powerful image in the history of the Jewish people. What do you make of the current charges being hurled back and forth?
2: Well, first of all, on an emotional level, John, it's understandable that... um, you know, that Jews have reached out for um, Holocaust and program analogies in order to understand um, the October 7 attacks, even if these analogies are not perhaps the most instructive for understanding of uh, what has transpired as, as as obscene as it is. And it's understandable, too, that Palestinians um, suffering these horrendous levels of violence in Gaza would see their oppressors as um, as Nazis. I, I, I don't uh, judge this behavior because these are people caught in an absolutely horrible situation. But I, I've always been very wary of introducing analogies to Nazism in the Holocaust when discussing this issue and for a number of reasons. First, the Israelis have shamelessly instrumentalized the Holocaust in defense of inhumane and brutal policies of expulsion, land confiscation, and of course, this occupation, which is now over 50 years old and faced with Israel's abuse of the Holocaust and with the suggestion that their own suffering can never measure up to Jewish suffering in the Second World War, Palestinians have responded either by calling the Israelis Nazis or by denying that the Holocaust ever happened and that it's just Zionist propaganda. Now, this is not an intellectual argument. This is just verbal warfare. And you know the Nazification of the enemy, whether it's by the much more powerful party, the Israelis, or by the weaker party, the Palestinians, has prevented both of them from understanding something that Edward Said constantly emphasized, which is that the Palestinians are victims of victims. I think that this insight of Said is not just a moral one, it's also a political one, because people who think of themselves as history's victims and who are determined never again to be victims are capable of resorting to the most extreme and even genocidal forms of violence, as we saw with the Serbs in Bosnia, as we're now seeing with the Israelis in Gaza. The attack on October 7 stirred the deepest fear in the Israeli Jewish psyche, the fear of annihilation. Just listen to the language of people like Israel's defense minister, Yoav Galant, who describes Palestinians as human animals another israeli official said the objective here is not is to inflict damage on gaza and you know they've inflicted quite a lot of it so i'm afraid to say that the campaign that israel is conducting now in gaza you know, 5000 people killed 2000 children is forcing me to reassess my own resistance to the use of the term genocide it seems to me there's been a progression in israel's posture towards the palestinians especially those in gaza from expulsion to discrimination oppression occupation Um, to now levels of violence that remind us of Russia and Grozny or episodes in the Second World War. Um, Israel's objective may still be what Baruch Kimmerling, an Israeli sociologist, called politicide, the elimination of the Palestinian people as a political entity, but it's moved very rapidly since October 7 to something closer to ethnocide. Um, It's a horrific development for the Palestinian people who are suffering unimaginably, but it's also a tragic chapter in the history of the Jewish people and their transformation from victims to perpetrators. Israel is running a great risk by building its security on the ruins of Gaza. And I fear that Jews abroad could be placed at grave risk by what Israel's doing.
0: And we also need to talk about uh, American policy, which, of course, means Joe Biden. You are uh, very critical of Biden's policy in your LRB piece. On the other hand, Biden in his Oval Office primetime speech said, I think, three really important things. He said, first, the U.S., quote, remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. The actions of Hamas terrorists don't take that right away, close quote. And second, he emphasized to Netanyahu, quote, the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best they can, close quote. And third, he told Bibi that, quote, the people of Gaza urgently need food, water, and medicine. That's pretty much what I hoped he would say. Right. I mean, he said said some of the right things, these quotes that you um, just cited.
2: But what kind of pressure um, is being applied? I mean, I see them dispatching aircraft carriers, and preventing uh, their diplomats from from using language like uh, ceasefire or reducing the harm to civilian lives and so on. Of course, there was also a uh, you know State Department official um, who oversaw the arms transfers to Israel who recently resigned and published a very um, eloquent letter uh, denouncing the policy and said he could no longer work for the administration for the for the government. Um, so. I see yet another stark contrast between these very reassuring words about the U.S.'s ultimate intentions with respect to a Palestinian state and its um, all-too-indulgent policy of permitting Israel to reign what is essentially state terror on the Gazan people. I mean, one hopes the Gazan people will, will survive to see such a state when you observe the kind of combat tactics that Israel is currently using. Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor, was quoted as saying that the administration defined the success of the war as ensuring the security of the Jewish people. What about the Palestinians? Don't they deserve security as well? It it seems that that's not a consideration of ours. I should add, by the way, that Biden has also discouraged the Israelis from pursuing a second, from opening a second front and attacking Hezbollah um, in, in Lebanon, which would, could gravely, um, escalate the conflict and draw Iran in. But the uh, Israeli military, which seems even more emboldened than Netanyahu himself, and remember, Netanyahu has, has historically been very reticent about getting involved in ground defenses. Um, the Israeli military is appears to be pushing ahead with that. The uh, tensions on the border on the Israeli-Lebanese border have, um, have increased um, and there is a possibility that if the ground invasion of Gaza begins, then um, Hassan Nasrallah, um, uh, Hezbollah Secretary General, who's been quite cautious so far, only attacking symbolically really the Sheba farms, may feel that he has no choice but to enter the battle. And that's a, that's a very scary thought.
0: And one last thing, Suppose Israel succeeds at its proclaimed goals of killing the leaders of Hamas and lots of its fighters. Will that be the end of the organization? I
2: doubt that very much. Hamas uh, has a political leadership outside the country. Much of it um, is in Qatar. Hamas is an organization that does not represent the majority of Palestinians, but it is an important part of Palestinian political society. And I do not think that it can be eliminated uh, by force of arms. I think that's a fantasy. I mean, we may not like Hamas, whether it's for attacks like October 7, or its, it's views about uh, gender and homosexuality, or it's, um, its religious intolerance. But the reality is that Hamas has deep roots in the society. And uh, its influence has been abetted, I'm afraid, uh, by the Israelis. Hamas has been the enemy that it wants to prevent the emergence of the Palestinian state and to weaken the Palestinian authority. And Netanyahu has been very clear about that. As recently as 2019, he said that his policy was to strengthen Hamas. And at the same time, Hamas has been a kind of ally. As, as long as Hamas is there in Gaza the Israelis can say, we have no partner for peace. Now, obviously, that, that delicate and what we now see as a, as a lethal dance with Hamas, that's over. The Israelis um, are not interested in shoring up Hamas. They're interested in liquidating it. But I think that's a, it's, a, it's an utter fantasy. And even if Hamas were to be vanquished, it would reappear either under the name Hamas or under a different name, or or it might be uh, succeeded by an even more radical organization. I mean, it's kind of a miracle, given the extreme suffering to which uh, the people of Gaza have been subjected for so many years, that more radical forms of political Islam haven't taken root there. There has not really been all that much of an ISIS problem in the Gaza Strip. There have been a, a scatter, scattering of radical Islamists, but very few. That too could change.
0: Your final thoughts today. my final thought,
2: John, is that the only thing that can really rescue the people of both Israel and Palestine, Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs, and of course, also Palestinian citizens of Israel, and prevent another Nakba, you know, the great um, dispossession, displacement of Palestinians that occurred in 1948, is a political solution that recognizes all of the inhabitants of Israel-Palestine as equal citizens and allows them to live in peace and freedom, no matter the framework, whether it's a single democratic state or two states or a federation. And so long as that solution is avoided, we will see a continuing degradation and possibly a greater catastrophe.
0: Adam Schatz, he wrote about Israel and Palestine, Hamas and Gaza for the London Review of Books. Adam, thanks for your work on this. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.